Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experienced the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And this season, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or, or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. So this season, we're diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. Yeah, there's stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We're talking about avant-garde film. We're talking about punk. We're talking about electronic art. We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. So when we started conceptualizing this season of the podcast, we thought we were going to talk about the organic creation of arts organizations, like people coming together with a common goal to start something, because they couldn't not start something. Artists have to create, and often they find communities to facilitate creating. But things with our podcast took a quick turn. Yeah, we found in addition to the filmmakers and musicians and artists that built these Oakland-based arts organizations, there was a decidedly non-organic contributor. We're talking about the funders. Organizations like the Mellon Trust and other large grant makers were essential for the founding of things like the film section at Carnegie Museum of Art, Pittsburgh Filmmakers, and the Selma Burke Arts Center. And elsewhere, academic institutions like Pitt and CMU facilitated electronic music and computer art. So out of this comes this idea of an institutional avant-garde. Now, in hindsight, the early 1970s was a time period where there was funding for experimentation in the arts. But as the decade went on, various factors threatened this financial support. For example, we saw that with the Selma Burke Art Center, they were a casualty of the Mellon Trust closing shop. But something else arrives in about 1976 that aligns with our original thesis for this season, punk. So as we will hear, punk is provocative, and it pushes the boundaries. But we want to be mindful of our listeners. So this episode does contain some explicit or offensive language. There are band names that include instances of cultural appropriation, and there are mentions of alcohol and drug use. We'll give you a moment to press pause or switch to a different episode if you want to. All right, so earlier this season, Ben O'Grodnick characterized Oakland in the 1970s as a constellation of people and organizations. 
But punk was a movement or a way of being that paralleled and influenced many of the activities of Pittsburgh filmmakers, Carnegie Museum of Arts, and other institutions and art forms. You cannot talk about the golden age of Pittsburgh punk without talking about the Pittsburgh filmmakers. They are connected. It is one organism. That is Harriet Stein. Harriet was the first person that I spoke with about punk in Pittsburgh, and she put me in contact with a bunch of the people that you will hear from in this podcast. It's like a hand and an arm. It goes together. It was just evolved that way that a lot of filmmakers were in bands and people who were in bands were photographers and some people who were painters were also poets and some people were poets. They write lyrics for songs and some people were dancers and it just just exploded. It just evolved. It was very natural, organic explosion that happened in Oakland primarily. So it sounds like punk was enmeshed in all these other arts activities in Oakland's. But before we go too far into the local punk scene, maybe we can talk a little bit about how punk became a thing. Yeah. So punk is diverse and hard to categorize, and it mutated quickly. So there were punk bands, but soon there were also new wave and no wave and oi bands. And in a few years, there was post-punk. And punk wasn't just music. It was many things. Art, performance, fashion, writing, film. If there was a through line between much of this diversification, it could be nonconformity and a DIY attitude. So let's look at the music side. The term punk rock was originally used to refer to mid-60s hard rock and garage bands. In the 1970s, there was a show poster for the New York band Suicide that says, Punk Music by Suicide. Still in the early 1970s, writers like Lester Bangs and Ellen Willis mentioned punk rock in their articles for Cream and The New Yorker. So the term was seen here and there. There were bands that are now considered proto-punk, like the Stooges, fronted by Iggy Pop, and the glam rock band The New York Dolls. These bands had a sharper, more chaotic edge than your normal rock band. I mean, obviously I wasn't there for any of this, but from what I have read, the first punk single is said to be Patti Smith's 7-inch Hey Joe, which has the B-side Piss Factory. And this places us in 1974. Now, by the mid-1970s, punk was a thriving thing. In April 1976, the Patti Smith group played Saturday Night Live. By late 1976, punk, and namely the Sex Pistols, were causing a morality crisis in England, frequently being mentioned in newspaper headlines. Carl Mullen, who played in the Pittsburgh band Car Sickness, and who we interviewed for this episode, was visiting London in 1977, and he remembered this. Back for one summer, I went back, I think, in the summer of 77, and I went out to some of the clubs, which were kind of a little bit off-putting. I remember seeing a group of young girls, and they were all safety pinned together in the cheek. And I was kind of a little bit terrified, and they were dancing away. I think we had a Stranglers gig. And no hell broke loose, everyone was spitting at the band. The sound was fucking awful. Uh, it was strange. It was really quite strange. Tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow is a new day. And as I mentioned earlier, punk scenes weren't just music. 
And of course, this DIY thing that happened in, in Europe and New York City and younger people wanted uh, a change. And I think in the cities too, it was connected, not just to the music scene. It was artists doing things themselves and photographers making original photographic images and dancers doing creative work. Other important bands include Television, The Ramones, The Slits, The Buzzcocks. A lot of bands were in New York and London, but punk was branching out to other cities. So, for example, in 1977, Los Angeles punk was firmly established. And soon there were no-wave bands like DNA and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, who in many ways were out-punking punk. So escalation and diversification of punk happened very quickly. Yeah, and punk started to make its way into Pittsburgh. Yeah, I've been told that I missed the party. You missed, you missed the party. <laughs> this is John Galone. John told me how he met a bunch of people in the mid-1970s in Pittsburgh, and then at some point, many of them found their way into bands. Uh, one of the charming things about punk to most people involved was, uh, you know, the lack of expertise musically that one really needed to get into it. All you really needed was commitment, an idea, a sense of fun, uh, and uh, really, no, uh, you know, no sense of personal embarrassment. And uh, so there was a lot of fun bands doing a lot of, you know, fun music. You've seen Debt Begins at 20. You know, there was a lot of music going on with no commercial potential. Um, but when people like Tom Moran showed up that could actually just, you know, play like a professional uh, and just sort of blowing everybody away. And then you had people, you know, bands started to emerge like, um, say, The Shakes. Uh, I believe those guys all had kind of a theater arts background, so they had much better stage presentation. You know, they really knew how to put a pop song together and how to present it. This is a few months into punk. I mean, when it was just starting to get off the ground, nobody's getting booked at gigs at this point. Everything just started off at house parties. At that point in time, we were so young, a lot of these parties were at somebody's house because their parents were away. And the worst thing you could possibly do is invite a bunch of punks over to a house party because they just wreck the place. And, you know, there's no way your parents are going to think that nothing happened. Or they were just at somebody's, you know, somebody's funky apartment in, in Oakland or Squirrel Hill or something like that, and everybody would just go ransack. So it all started off with these house parties, and they would all get, you know, busted by cops, and then it would move on to the next one. So you spoke with a bunch of the people who were part of the scene. What was the first Pittsburgh punk band? Yeah, great question. Uh, once it started, once punk started, it, it sounds like bands sprung up very quickly. So let's hear from a bunch of people. Harriet Stein, John Galone, Carl Mullen, Gina Sue Cotton, Jason Gibbs, Mike Seat, and first up, Tom Moran. first punk band in Pittsburgh were the, the shut-ins. Which is Johnny Angola's band. Johnny Shanley, Johnny Angola, started Pittsburgh Punk. He put an ad in the Pittsburgh Post Gazette in the Wanted and said, Punks Wanted. And a couple people responded to his ad and they started the band called The Shut Ins. Then came the puke. Oh my God. Maybe besides the throwbacks, the first real punkish, crazy art band. I saw in Pittsburgh was the puke, and that was going to a party where they were playing, and nobody was. Everybody thought people just party, 
thought a band was going to play. Those of us that were friends of the band knew, well, joke's on you, it's the puke. (laughs) The puke would generally play until either they got booed off the stage, the cops came, or just, you know, it just fell apart and everybody went home pissed off. It was far more performance art than music, so it was always hilarious to go see the puke. And of course, that was Joe Wargo, Barney Scum, Bill... Bill Von Hagen, Bill Board. And my friend Kim Walter. They went on KDKA News in 1978, like a freak show. You know, like after the weather and before the sports, here's a clip of some freaks, some fucking freaks. <laughs> whoever, Patty Burns, whoever was on that, or dad, Bill Burns. There's a clip of the band called The Puke. Noisy, obnoxious, you know break the windows, call the cops, rock, rock and roll, raw, you know, which is, which is basically what punk is, but all with just a great sense of humor. I mean, it was all hilarious. You, you spend more time laughing than shaking your ass. I mean, you would listen to, you know, that kind of music. So it was great, great fun. And then and there was like, and there was the Bible, the band, the Bible, the thing was to go and rip up a Bible on stage. This is a Catholic city. Oh, I was like, oh, it was great. Tom Moran was was in the Bible and Bill Von Hagen was in the puke. And they came out of like CMU. One of the first ones was I remember Tom Moran, those guys doing the throwbacks. And that's when I was just like, well, this is a game changer. Everybody's been listening to noise for the past six months, years of just having, you know, a great fun time. Now it's starting to kick up a notch. We're seeing people like Tom Moran. We're seeing you know, Carl Mullen has showed up. He's got a real political kind of stance. He's got a real idea of where he wants to go. And after that was the uh, the cunts. But Kinko's refused to print the poster with the cunt in it. So they took out uh, the N and the band became the Cuts. And that had a couple of people from other bands. Dawn Spear was in that band. Mm-hmm. Who was the drummer? The drummer was in Stick Against Stone. Uh, and Bob Price played guitar with me. Well, I think Dave Doremus might have been in that band. We ended up in the five on base. It wasn't a schism, but it was a big breakdown too between the CMU bands and pit bands. The Shakes, they came out of CMU. Hey, the Shakes are kind of like a little more poppy, a little more new wave, very slick, very well-written songs, well-rehearsed, a joy to look at. Boom, 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 you jump up and down, it's popping. The Cardboards were basically a CMU band. Cardboards were like a happening. The Cardboards were not just a band. It was like an Andy Warhol happening. So we're hearing from a few people that played in a succession of bands. And a lot of these folks were in college, attending Pitt or CMU. In these early stages of Pittsburgh punk, the scene was small, everyone knew each other, and they all played in each other's bands. John Galone talks about the formation of the band The Cuts, and this happened in his living room, and how that morphed into two of the most influential bands in the scene, Car Sickness and The Five. This is about 1970. 778, I would say. 
So about this time I'm living in Pittsburgh, I'm living on McKee Place. And my downstairs neighbor is Ron Washinsky. He's the guy who is one of the people in the cardboards, just by coincidence. My uh, housemate at the time is Dick Vitale. He's a drummer. He's pr- he practices a lot in the living room. One day, somebody's walking down the street, Don Spear, or somebody's coming over to visit Ron. I forget how it happens, but they hear Dick drumming. And they say, hey, we're looking for a drummer. You, got, you want to drum in a band or something like that. It's almost, you know, sort of Judy Garland. Hey, kids, want to put on a show? <laughs> uh, so a couple of people show up at my house, and, and it's a couple of these people I've known. It's like, oh, geez, you guys were people at the party a couple of weeks ago. Oh, this is coming full circle. So a couple of these guys get together. It's Carl Mullen, and they start this band called The Cuts. And they start practicing in my living room. So... I have band practice every day in my living room with the cuts. And so they start playing around. Don Spear was in this band as well. So they are actually a little bit more ambitious. They're starting to get gigs maybe at a decade and places like that. Around that time, they kind of fall apart, and that band sort of transmorgifies into some early version of car sickness or something. And Tom Moran and Dick Vitale stick together and start this band called The Dark, which continues to play in my living room. My band at the time was called The Dark, and uh, it was rhythm section from a band called The Cuts, which is uh, Carl Mullins' band. And so this turns into what I guess was the foundation of the five at that point in time. This is before Reed would have been involved or Brian Gillespie. So you can kind of see how all this thing just... A lot of it is coincidence. A lot of it's just being a small scene to begin with. Um, a lot of it is just some friends and then some networking. And this is how I ended up in the middle of it. Well, I, I did mention the five. They were they were, I always felt were like the really um, really nasty music in a good way. <laughs> That's Jason Gibbs, who was studying musicology at Pitt at the time. He would later play with car sickness. Quite quite noisy and. Uh, Reed Paley had a fair amount of histrionics. The funny thing is they were called the five, but most of the time there were just four of them. But they had a fifth member who played um, synthesizer kind of in the way the guy in Perubu plays the synthesizer, where it was just a, a lot of sort of oscillating sounds in the background. Then there was also out of sort of out of CMU was that band, the Rave Ups, who ended up like going out to Hollywood and like kind of making a big, and they had a track in Pretty in Pink. So lots of bands, lots of names. If you aren't familiar with these groups, it's probably a little confusing, but the idea is that things happen quickly. Bands started, bands stopped. One of the longest lasting groups was Car Sickness. Here's Carl Mullen with the story of how they initially formed. And then we went to see The Clash in Cleveland at the Agora Ballroom. And I think I was starting right down the front of, of the show. And I think there was Steve Shuley was there next to me. And we went to a bar afterwards somewhere locally. I think he wanted a ride home or something like that. And we were like, Jesus, you know, what a great show that was. Let's form a band and just make it up. Just do our own thing. Didn't have to sound like anyone else. I'd assumed he played guitar, but he showed up then back in Pittsburgh at the first practice with a set of bagpipes. And then he went from bagpipes to synthesizer. So he'd had a background in the folky stuff as well. But he showed up at the first car sickness uh, rehearsal uh, before we had a name. Uh, with the set of backpipes. Yeah, but when we formed the band, we never wanted to sound like a punk band. We never wanted, we, I didn't. We never wanted to sound like the Ramones or Three Chords or any of that stuff uh, and, and didn't. So it was kind of, sometimes it's amusing all this years later, we still get lumped 
into that because if you go back and listen to the music, it sounds nothing like quote unquote punk rock. Hagen really got the fun party. Let's have good time. Let's have fun punk up and running. It was Carl Mullen who got the uh, let's let's make a point <laughs> kind of punk scene up because it was, you know, much, much more political, much more European. The, the dichotomy between American punk and British punk is no more evident than if you sat down with Carl Mullen and uh, Bill Von Hagen. You know, <laughs> Bill would have all the latest Ray Beat records, and Carl Mullen would want you to listen to The Clash and Billy Bragg. And yeah. I love, and I love them, and I love them both. Yeah. <laughs> Don't put me in the middle of this. <laughs> so one of our colleagues at Carnegie Mellon is Ruth Ann Schmidt, and it turns out she was actually in one of these bands called the Rumhounds. We had friends that made up a band in the in the dorms and so we thought we could do that too us we're my roommate and i and the two girls next to us and then someone else heard about us and it was mutual friends with some other people and said hey i want to join your band so we made one up too and it didn't with no thought of like we're going to do this but you know we met some other people and they're like you should do it here's our instruments so our first gig was like two songs and the car sickness guys were like, okay, do your two songs, get off the stage, we'll ask for an encore, you play them again. <laughs> so that was it. We just kind of made it up, found a name in a thesaurus, believe it or not, the Rumhounds. One performance that was really striking was seeing Dress Up as Natives at Pittsburgh Filmmaker. They just played after some screenings, and they, they were really something else. They, they, oh, they only put out like a three-song EP. There were even more bands. One of the best Pittsburgh punkers is Michael Kostelik, who was the lead singer of the Cynics, world famous Cynics. But he was in other bands before that. He was in um, 96 Tears with Sam Matthews, as a matter of fact. One of the earlier hardcore bands, Half-Life, were good. They were they were a lot of fun for a while. What was it, Plastic Bottles, Elise Skirball? like made this noise, this group where all they did was just make like feedback noise. <laughs> but again, none of this is, is really documented. And then there was this band, Hans Brinker and the Dykes. Great names. Just known, just known for, familiar as the Dykes. And as far as I know, none of them were actually Dykes, but like that is such a, such a transgressive name, right? 
So, I mean, punk, the punk is supposed to be offensive, right? It's supposed to be transgressive. Punk is political. That scene really took off pretty quickly because there was, you know, at the time in Pittsburgh, it seemed like, you know, the demographic, I believe, at that point in time was like, you know, what was it like 60% of the people in Pittsburgh were over the age of 55 or something. So if you were a young person, we made up, aside from the university scenes there, all the universities, we made up kind of a fairly small clique. It just seemed like we all kind of knew each other eventually. There wasn't a, there wasn't a gigantic you know, youth culture scene in Pittsburgh to begin with. So people kind of had to congregate as they could. So it seemed like as this scene began to develop, um, more people kind of tossing bands together. Like the famous quote about the Velvet Underground, uh, you know, their first record. It may have only sold a thousand copies, but everybody that bought one started a band. In previous episodes, we've seen how certain people emerge as leaders within their respective institutions. The punk scene was not an institution in the same way that the others were, but there were certain leaders within the community. So here's John Galone on Bill Von Hagen, a.k.a. Bill Board's role in supporting the scene. From my perspective getting into it, it was Bill Von Hagen was the driving force for a lot of this. Bill was, you know, the cool hippie kid that was super friendly with everybody. Everybody knew Bill. And Bill was always entrepreneurial. He uh, had a garage, came with his apartment, I think it was on Bouquet Street, and he opened it up and started the record store. And he had this little, you know, record shop he threw together, selling his records, and it was uh, selling and trading records. So he was right in on the ground floor of that in Pittsburgh. And then he started his own magazine called New Magazine, where he starts reviewing punk records and odd records. And, you know, once again, it could be anything from, you know, glam, avant-garde, arty, arty music, sometimes going to some of these house parties, sometimes pictures showing up in there. Uh, So it starts to become something. And Bill, you know, a a person can get get interest in a movement, but it takes people to create a scene. Bill was good at at finding both. He was good at kind of creating interest in this thing, but I never met anybody that was more gregarious than Bill Von Hagen. He knew everybody. He knew how to get people together. He knew how to get a party. But, you know, and he, if you hung out with Bill, his phone would just ring off the hook. I mean, it's a good example if you see a couple of scenes that Depp begins at 20 when he's sitting in his, uh, you know, what looks like a bomb blast, but was actually his apartment <laughs> at the holiday. And I mean, every couple of seconds, the phone's ringing. He's talking about gigs and telling where the parties are, what's going on. I mean, that was Bill's lifestyle, just, you know, constantly. So Bill was the catalyst to bring a lot of these people together. A different type of glue for the scene was a general sense of mutual aid which extended to contributing to political causes through benefits. Here's Tom Moran and Carl Mullen. The main thing was we had the artists, musicians, all hung out together and contributed to each other, doing benefits for this or that, you know. Everybody was very supportive until, until people started having arguments a few years later. But in the initial phase, it was great. Everybody was, oh, you're doing this and you're doing that. Because prior to that, you know, it was kind of like Norm Nardini and the Iron City House Rockers, and that was it. It was kind of that old, 
almost kind of Springsteen rock and roll stuff that didn't really interest a lot of people. And of course, we did tons and tons of benefits that I always liked. And we were always asked, and we did Rock Against Racism and Money for Cuba and, you know, Lesbian and Gay Solidarity and uh, Africa This and Cuba That and all kinds of things and uh, helped raise a lot of money. So that was an important part of feeling like that you're part of the community. Harriet Stein describes how the scene transcended generations. And by generations, we're talking about people in their late teens versus people in their late 20s. There was a generosity within the general excitement of the times. And a lot of these uh, filmmakers are several years older than me. Natalko Vozlikov, Peggy Awash, Jim Vale, Joan Sisak. Rick Pito, and uh, surprisingly, they would come to me and say, hey, kid, what's going on? You know, hey, young punk. They're like in their late, late 20s, and I'm 18, and like I have a little bit of my pulse on what's going on at that pit at the universities with the young scene. And I was asking them the same questions. Hey, what's going on? Where's the party? Where's the scene? Where's the films? What's the good art? And surprisingly, they really listened to me and they respected my opinion, which was so, that was so uplifting. It was so nice. Like everybody was like that. And we were, everybody was up for anything, you know, like jump in the car. I heard about a party. Okay. You want to go? Sure. Do my drums fit in the trunk? <laughs> Can we fit the keg in there too? So that became a lot of time became my job because I had a, a big sedan from my parents, a big, four-door sedan that could load it up with punks, load it up with guitars and drums, and we could hit the... Like, there was so much stuff going on. There wasn't just, like, a party. It would be, like, which party are we going to first? So, like, first we'll go to, like, uh, the banana, electric banana. Then we'll cut out of there when that closes, and there's, like, a party over at the dorms at the Oakland uh, Ward Street and Hell House parties. It would be, like, a decision, like, which cool, which happening thing would you do first? And you go into a party, it's not happening. Then you like, you split, you go to the other one, you know? You don't leave anybody behind, though. It's like soldiers in a war. You just don't leave your friends in the cellar and jump in the car and split and leave them at a, at a dull party. <laughs> we were on a pursuit. We were hungry. So another factor that influenced the community in a couple different ways was just the general environment in Pittsburgh at the time. The industries that built wealth in the city were starting to crumble. So here's Mike Seat with his experiences trying to find a job after high school. Mike would later work as a doorman for the electric banana. I was trained to be a machinist. I'd gone to machine shop school and the steel industry collapsed right when I was getting out of school in like 80, 81 you couldn't get work. I mean, they ended up bouncing because there was no, like we, my machine shop class toured the big shop in Homestead. They're like you all get jobs here. Those are good union jobs. 1980, I was what, 17, 18 years old. And like, you'll get a job making, you know, $25 an hour with full benefits. And by the time I graduated with my machine operator certificate, the big shop was being torn down. Yeah, you know, we lost 80,000 manufacturing jobs in five or six years. So it was a tough place to make a living. 
in the late 70s and early 80s, we were in a horrible depression. All the mills had closed and there were no jobs. 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 <laughs> okay. Where we got the money to buy beer and party was we really scraped it together. And everybody was on the guest list. Everybody was a friend of somebody. Everybody was bumming like money, like I need two bucks for gas. And if we get the gas, then we can go to the gig. But this collapse of industry led to, I mean, I guess you could say an affordability when it came to certain expenses. Here's Jason Gibbs. I mean, Pittsburgh is a really interesting place. I, I really loved loved Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, I was in, still had a little bit of the steel mill flavor to it. it. It was just sort of the last vestiges. You could look off and see the Hazelwood works glowing in the distance and smell a little sulfur every now and then. So, so, but, but that shut down during the time I was there. So it, it was a working class city, but at the same time, when you have that kind of circumstance, the people growing up there are affluent enough that they don't necessarily go directly into a career if they've got a sort of a creative bent that they'll go out and explore things. And Pittsburgh was a really easy place to live in then, maybe because the economy was down, but rents were cheap and, and it was just a really comfortable place to be. Yeah, when I spoke with Harriet Stein, she mentioned that rents in the South Side at that time were about $75 a month per person, and you got a whole floor. Wow, today that's more like $1,500 for a one-bedroom apartment. Yay. <laughs> you know, there were people there who just could be artistic in their own way and maybe hold down some kind of marginal job or be in school. And generally, there was an attitude of supporting everybody, just a a positive attitude. Yeah, and there were even punk businesses. Well, you know, there was like Ken Leisure. Ken Leisure was part of the scene. Ken Leisure cut hair. He starts cutting everybody's hair. I forget Ken's uh, actual name. Um, it, Ken passed away a couple years ago. Ken starts cutting everybody's hair. Everybody's got to get a Ken haircut. Uh, how cool? I mean, he. How cool is that? He's you know he's cutting everybody's hair. So it's like. It's it's so uh, Carnaby Street, it's so so London in the 1960s. Everybody's got to have the same haircut. Marianne and Joe start a little catering service, and they start going around to the different places where all these where the various punk kids work. They get an in at all these companies, and suddenly everybody's seeing Joe and Marianne catering, bringing in fresh organic salads every day. Um, you know, <laughs> people were kind of managing to take this punk thing, this community thing, and expand upon it into the real world. If everybody stuck around long enough, there would have been a, there would have been a puke cafe somewhere in the strip district. Well, maybe not the puke cafe, but something like that. So, so far we've heard a lot about parties. Can we hear some party stories? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's probably worth stating that in the early days of the punk scene, there were a few venues that hosted punk bands. So shows happened in people's houses. There were a few main residences where activities took place. So if you watch Debt Begins at 20, which is a film by Stephanie Barros, you'll see a couple of different houses, and the Krishna House is one of them. A lot of people used to come post gigs over to our apartment. It was called the Krishna House, because the Hare Krishnas used to live there. It was right next to CMU. 
everybody would hang around the Krishna house with car sickness. Everybody used to hang around the holiday to hang out with Bill and, and the puke. And, uh, you know, these places weren't exactly squats. Um, a squat would be embarrassed by the comparison, I believe. <laughs> they were kind of so funky. These are just houses that people kind of lived at in Oakland where we kind of all hung out for more house parties. Here is Gina Sue Cotton, who played in the band Dress Up as Natives, with some of the more colorful house stories. I lived at the infamous Bartlett house that was at one point known as the Bachelor Pad, and so I moved in with, I used to be romantically involved with Dave Doremus of the Five, and I lived there with him, and that place caught fire which was very interesting because everybody who lived there was a record collector. And we came home from a show at about one in the morning to the apartment on fire. And the firemen were like, what's burning up there? What's burning up there? And we're like, records. <laughs> it was like the record collector's version of, the, you know, episode 13 of the hoarders or something, because there was just like a path through the living room to get through the records. But Dave and I went, moved into the Krishna house after that, and we resided in the Krishna house living room for quite some time, which was good and bad. (laughs) There was rats in the sub-basement. There was a raccoon that used to climb up the outside of the house, and Carl used to feed it hot dogs out the kitchen window. (laughs) Did Reed tell you about the spaghetti that used to come up to the shower drain? No, no. When we take showers, the kitchen was right in the shared wall with the bathroom. And I don't know what was up with the plumbing system, but when you would take a shower, like spaghetti would come up through the drain. <laughs> and and I'll tell you, I don't know why we used to do it, but we used to have like crazy parties there. I mean, insane parties that would end up in water fights. And I remember, like, after Black Flag's first show, they played the decade the first time they ever came to Pittsburgh. And they came over to our house, the Christian house at that point, and it was an extraordinarily wild party. I remember Mugger, who was a fixed year with Black Flag's for a while, was outside on the sidewalk outside, and Carl Mullen was up in the second floor window, and there was a mannequin that was a prop in the living room, and Carl would throw the mannequin out the window and Mugger would throw the mannequin back up to the second story. And that went on for like ever just tossing this mannequin back and forth. And I think about it now and I'm like, that's really absurd. (laughs) Um, But we had a water fight and I mean, it was just like, and this would be randomly happen, like almost like for quite a few parties where it would end up in these like massive, like, throwing buckets of water at each other. And I remember just like the, the carpets and the halls, everything was saturated. I just don't even know how we lived here. The whole place was spray painted. I don't know if you've seen pictures inside of it, but there wasn't one inch of it that wasn't covered with spray paint or punk posters. It was quite a house. It really was. I'm like nothing else. Shortest, most direct, and useful, but trust. 
So the punk scene saw some wild parties, but it wasn't just about that. The scene influenced filmmakers and artists and places like Pittsburgh Filmmakers and the film section. I mean, Pittsburgh Filmmakers was integral to the scene. Integral. Bill Boyshell, huge scene supporter, and then he had the weekend movies. He curated all the movies and brought in, like, the best movies you ever want to see. And pretty much what that amounted to is on Saturdays, we would drag in a bunch of beer to Pittsburgh Filmmakers, own theater, and we would watch the best movies ever. So it was all the people from, you know, the bands and everything else it was that went to do this. I ended up working at Filmmakers and being the janitor <laughs> and loved the place to death. I do believe that there was something coming out of Pittsburgh and filmmakers came here from all over the country and all over the world. And they didn't just come and show their film and leave. They spent like four or five or six days. They like hung out. They like slept on our couch. You know, Jean-Luc Godard didn't just show a film and leave. I mean, this is a famous story. You know, you usually come in and then like you meet the students, the film students, and you go out to drinks and dinner. And he said, he said I don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> he goes, uh, he was there for a few days. He said, I want to go get a steam bath. So they took him to the uh, the old Jewish Y on Belfield, which is now the uh, board of next to the Board of Education. It's now a pit building, the beautiful building in Belfield. It was the Jewish Y. Had a good steam bath, a steam room. So Jean-Luc Couture, that's what he did when he came in. And then the next day he went for drinks and dinner. And then he looked at people's films. And then, you know, he hung out. Also, the filmmakers showed punk films, meaning films of punks and punk bands, the decline of Western civilization, films of, of all the bands playing all around the world, as well as films that were punk in their construction, in their neo-narrative, in their essence. They were punk films, but they weren't always about punks or punk bands. They were punk films. John Galone was working at WRS, the film processing lab in Pittsburgh. And let's just say he might have helped out a few of his friends who were making films. Now, to toss it on top, I'm working at WRS Motion Picture Lab, where meeting a lot of these people from Pittsburgh filmmakers. This is at the same time I'm seeing Stephanie Burroughs, pretty good friends with her, and she's starting to get interest in this thing, and she's starting to shoot Death Begins at 20. Coincidentally, I happen to be in the right place at the right time. Again, I'm working at WRS Motion Picture Lab, uh, you can use that as delicately as you care to because WRS is out of business, but you know what I mean. Hey, we're a punks. Give me a break. Hey, don't start with me. <laughs> so uh, so it just starts coming together, and it, it's like it's happening. And with uh, Step Begins at 20, I started doing the sound for that, uh, running around to these things with Stephanie, uh, photographing it, and I'm, I'm running the sound, which was the closest I've ever come to working in combat to be at one of these crazy house parties where everything's just loud and noisy and people throwing shit and you're waiting for the cops to show up and you got all this gear and you're trying to set up gear and keep things organized and, and everybody's drinking beer and beer's flying every place and all of these houses that you're, that you're working in. Circuits are blowing. Uh, if, you're, if you're getting cats out of the way, you got to move for I mean, everybody's living in squalor. <laughs> so it was as close as I came to uh, life during wartime. Harriet Stein remembers going to screenings at the film section at the Carnegie Museum of Art. It wasn't just the filmmakers. It was the, the uh, Carnegie Museum of Art Department of Film with Bill Judson and Geraldine Huxley, 
when I used to go, he used to actually be there and he would crouch down like in a squat and the owl and watch the film, kind of walk around, make sure that, you know, everything was the lighting was okay. And I said to him many, many, many times, I said, man, your knees are going to give out because he would crouch the whole time watching the movie go over maybe sit next to somebody whisper in their ear for a minute say look at this scene check out that (laughs) so as i was a fan and devoted to the bands that's how i'm devoted to the film series and the program notes they're like my treasures (laughs) they're a little yellow they're a little crinkled on the edges some of them have coffee stains on them you know (laughs) They're, 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 they're artifacts a lot of the bands would go so they were kind of interesting edgy music-related stuff, or they were, you know, Louis Bunuel films or something. Yeah, no, we'd all go to those films. Smoke a big joint outside and have a six-pack, you know, or a beer on your coat and go watch, a, you know, a film that, you didn't, that wasn't television or, or that wasn't Hollywood. Yeah, it was great. So in addition to making and watching films, photography was a big thing in the punk scene. Well, it's a funny thing. I mean, I remember we played a couple of early gigs and I'd never seen so many cameras I mean, everybody in the audience had a camera. And somehow, I guess, we found out that there were all these photographers around from either CMU. I didn't quite know where they were from. They were connected to the cardboards and other bands, but there was a ton of photographers uh, around at the scene, all taking pictures as if the band was famous or if, you know, like click, 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 click. But a lot of those uh, people were all connected to filmmakers. Around the same time, I transitions from working in the movie business to working in the still business, working at the the dark room incorporated in Pittsburgh, where it turns out a bunch of us were working. Larry Ripple worked there. Uh, Kim Walter worked there. Uh, a number of us were working there who were, had photo backgrounds. That was my major was communication and ended up being a photographer. Any of the punks that weren't interested in photography got jobs as delivery people. So they, Dave Doremus was a delivery guy. Tom Moran was delivering. Uh, Dick Vitale, you know, so all these other players start showing up. Suddenly, the place is just a blast. <laughs> you know, it's a nice, fun kind of place to work where you know, you know everybody that works there. You hang out with them after work. You see them on the weekend. The dark room is where all of these posters for the cardboards uh, began to be, be uh, being generated. Because they had one of the, uh, I don't know if there was any, I only knew of maybe one or two color Xerox machines at the time in Pittsburgh, pretty high tech stuff, color Xerox. And, uh, and this was a, this is a particularly, uh, crazy sort of Rube Goldberg setup that they had there where you would use a carousel. This is all technology carousel slide projector projected up into a prism mechanism that projected it down onto the screen onto a Fresnel lens that helped, uh, diffuse it so that it would actually make a print that would come out of it, the copier in color. Now, if you laid a, uh, acetate overlay on the surface of that copier, you could add type to whatever came out. And this is what Ron started to do with images that I generated. So that's how I got involved in a number of these uh, cardboard posters, was it was my photography, and we kind of manipulated things and got type together for them and, and printed them out at the darkroom. Those are just incredible works of art that had models, studio, set design, convey the information in a starkingly interesting, beautiful way, in an original way, and then they were taped and stapled up on telephone and utility poles all over the city. And of course, 
everybody like me was ripping them down. <laughs> you know? oh, oh, my favorite bands, the plane at the banana. Oh, it says, look at these colors. Look at this, how beautiful. Look how creative. So one of the problems with communicating all the shows was like everybody was so devoted. A lot of times people would rip them all, you know, carefully, like, I took them off like carefully. That's why I have them all. That's why I have a, a hundred beautiful posters. But that was a, just an incredible piece of like guerrilla art in itself. Harriet Stein donated their poster collection to the Pittsburgh Queer History Project, co-founded by Harrison Apple and Tim Haggerty. There are a number of collaged posters that play with perspective and color and space and multiple fonts. Yeah, the wide range of music by the bands is really reflected in the aesthetic of the posters. So, for example, the Cardboards posters from 1980 play with color and precise form of collage. Things get surreal and uncanny, much like their music. But if you look at the Fives posters, the content is a little darker. You see wax dripped on a hand holding a cigarette. You see a diagram of a serrated knife cutting into a foot. So the scene started with house shows, but then bands got shows at bars. There was a bar called Phase 3 in Swissvale, and there was also a place called Le Cirque in Market Square downtown. Le Cirque was in Market Square. It was a tiny little bar, and it was upstairs. I think the first show I saw there was The Dark, and the owners were really cool. Upstairs from the bar, there was like a bunch of theater props and costumes, and we used to run around up there. There was an infamous wedding there. The first wedding I ever attended, actually, and it was a gay wedding, was and uh, Peggy Awesh, Peggy filmed it. So there's actually a film of this wedding. Um, there was a mashup of bands playing, like it was a combination of Car Sickness, Reed Paley was playing. It was it was quite the event. It was quite a wedding, but Cirque hosted that. They ended up having to close down because of all the expansion of Market Square. So Le Cirque was no more after it was it had a short run, but it was a sweet run that was a really great place. When phase three shut down in nineteen seventy nine, bands were looking for a venue. Carl Mullen from Car Sickness and Reed Paley from The Five approached Johnny Banana at the Electric Banana about putting on punk shows, and it worked. We have a few people telling the story with varying details. Here is Harriet Stein. So there's like this competition who says like, who was the first person who went to Johnny Banana and said to him, hey, Johnny, why don't you try some bands doing originals instead of covers? Why don't you try some rock? Instead of, he was he had um, a go-go bar, Johnny Banana. And Reed Paley went in and said, let's try on a Thursday night when it's slow or something. We'll book a couple bands. And Johnny went, okay, I'll see how they do at the bar. It's all, you know, got to do some liquor business, you know. Uh, we'll see what happens. And then, like, all these freaky kids show up, like people with pink hair and people with mohawks and this crazy music. But they were buying drinks and, uh, you know, he was getting a piece of the, the action that the, when they come in, the admission price comes in. And uh, he turned out he really liked it. He actually, like, honestly, I think he really loved the scene. He really loved the kids and the energy and the spunk and the punk. And, you know, he said, OK, we'll try it again next Saturday. OK, OK. You know, so a scene was born. 
Yeah, and Tom Moran says that the electric banana gave punks a home. You know, that gave us a home. Mm. And that's when everybody came out. And, you know, it didn't matter what night it was, the place is going to be packed. And uh, that was a good thing. Johnny and Judy should get the keys to the city. I've always said that. You know, he practically raised a lot of people up to him and Judy. You know, and they're always cooking the stuff and you know, I don't know, black flags and pounders and these calls. It's like, hey, you guys want to come over for rigatoni? Hank's here. You know, it's like for, for Henry Roll, Hank, Hank's here. Hank, in this case, is Henry Rollins from Black Flag. Our colleague Ruth Ann Schmidt also played shows at the Banana. It was a neat place, though. It could be horribly intimidating going in, but it never was to me because I always felt at home there. And you never really got paid. I mean, you know, everybody kind of knew that. And if you were promised 50 bucks, woo, 50, no, 100, I think we were promised once. We, I think we got 50. I kicked a stool, and Johnny said, that little one's got a big mouth. <laughs> But it was fun, and we played with Husker Du one time, and uh, I never drank there, though, because it was pretty expensive. Um, So we'd go to Chiefs, of course, and get warmed up, and sometimes you'd never make it out of Chiefs, but (laughs) you'd miss the show, or you'd be late, and y'all for a song they already did. I did that once at the Minutemen. They played it already! No, they used to all drink at a bar called Chiefs down the hill from the Banana. That's Mike Seat, who for about nine or ten months worked the door at the Banana. Because the drinks were too expensive at the Banana. I remember that people would go there and all get loaded, and it was really funny because they had these ridiculously cheap drinks. Like a double shot of gin or cheap whiskey was, I think, $2. And you'd get a 16-ounce can of beer for like $1.75. And you'd go in there, and it was traditionally been like an old working man's bar from all the guys who still worked in North Oakland. And you'd go in there, and there'd be like, 20 guys who look like Fred Sanford, and then like 10 people with mohawks. It was very funny. Not playing in bands, Mike has an interesting perspective on the crowds that attended the Electric Banana. It was fascinating. At first, it was different, you know, being African-American than anything you ever heard. You know, be, you know you're black at that time. You listen to early hip-hop. You listen to the Daz band. You know, you're into funk. I always hated the way people were like, you know, in high school in Wilkinsburg. They're like, you have to listen to what the rest of us listen to, or else you're not black enough. You know, it's all that bullshit. You know, it's like my parents had a big record collection of everything from like Buddy Holly to Texas Swing to some rockabilly shit. And, you know, big band, you know, Louis Jordan and all that jump blues stuff from back then. Me and my brother and sister were open to music, just liked all kinds of music, classical, jazz. So we were always drawn to like, let's go see some, you know, we'd hear there was a guy called George G in the Make Believe Ballroom Orchestra that would play there sometime. He was a CMU guy. And he had a band that was like a 1940s swing band. And they wore tuxedos and dinner jackets and had little cardboard podiums with George G logo. And they would play. And we thought it was fantastic. Like, you know, a 12-piece horn section and a torch singer. It was cool. Our oral history interviews with musician and computer scientist Roger Dannenberg and musician Ben Opie revealed that both actually played in George G's make-believe ballroom orchestra. So Mike Seat worked the door in 1984. And by 1984, some of the eclecticism, the integration of synthesizers, horns, and theatrics of the punk scene was waning. 
Hardcore punk was becoming more prevalent. It was the beginning of a new scene. It was all guitar-driven. It was all white kids, pretty much, you know, and after a while, it got kind of stale. So the emergence of hardcore is kind of where our story ends. It's a point where some interviewees said one scene changed over to another scene. What had happened in our scene was that the separation between the stage and the audience became erased. And that's what changed, I don't know, 81, 82, 83, when you went to a bar and you saw a bunch of guys playing rock and roll with guitars and drums. That wasn't a scene anymore. Then you had a wall. Even though there's people mosh pitting and dancing and banging it up, something changed or wasn't that connection, kinetic, that energy, the wave, something that, that happens once in a while. What changed was when hardcore came in, it became, as I said, testosterone-led, very male-led. There was a really, a really intense scene that developed at the banana in the mid-80s. But it wasn't our scene, it was a different scene. But it wasn't just hardcore. There was a music infrastructure problem in Pittsburgh, which still exists today. You know, we had so little support. I mean, Pittsburgh had such a fantastic music scene. You know, bands used to come through there and just be absolutely amazed, like big name bands. Like, you know, to this day, like, I remember Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag emailing me, hey, you know, what's up? You know, like they remembered us. They they remembered our bands. They remembered how strong the scene was. The problem was we didn't have support. Like other cities, I think they could facilitate getting their music out there a lot easier than we could. There wasn't much of a record label presence outside of a few smaller DIY efforts like public records who released music by The Five and 24 Minutes. There was also Bogus Records, which was run by Jim Spitznagel, who also owned Jim's Records, an influential record shop. So a record label has the potential to offer things like distribution of music, access to promoters, and access to tour agents. And these are things that can make music sustainable for musicians. I mean, that was the other thing about the sustainability of the band's your friends can only support you for so long, particularly when it goes from being free in a social situation to being 10 bucks to get in or five bucks to get in or even eight bucks to get in. They'll stop going. I mean, I think when Crossing decided to fold, you know, we thought, well, there's no audience, there's no nothing, there's no... I remember once we played up in Canada and we opened for with some of the guys from the Sex Pistols, they had a side shoot band and they were like, how many years you've been together? And we were like, oh, you know, 15 or so. They're like, fucking hell, we were famous in three months and we couldn't play nothing. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God. But then years later, you hear from people that, oh, my God, when I was a kid, I used to sneak in to see you guys play the banana. Or um, I remember that time you played, you know, in Meadville College or something like that. And the guy that helped book us on the radio station was like, oh, my God, car signals are coming to play. And it was a big deal to them. But you'd never hear that at the time it happens. It was, it's like years later you hear that stuff. Now, in 1984, John Galone moved to Seattle, and he describes experiencing a similar growth in the local scene to what he witnessed in Pittsburgh. 
And it's like, basically, it's the same scene. It's the same people. It's the same funky houses. It's the same funky equipment. Everybody's making noise. They all love the same bands. We're, we're all talking about the germs. Everybody's, everybody loves Teenage Jesus. You know, it's all the same bands. We're all, it's all the same culture. It's just a different f- faction of the same tribe. And, and it starts turning into this organic grunge scene out here. And I'm just like scratching my head because one, I've seen this before. Two, where were you guys seven or eight years ago? Is <laughs> also my thing. And then the third thing is, I can't believe that everybody's getting signed in Seattle. And this is something that always frustrated me about Pittsburgh was, you know, nobody really got signed. Everybody had to leave. You know, the, you know, Reed Paley went to New York. Tom. Uh, Miranda's guys went to Boston. Kim Walter went to Boston. I bailed and came up. That, that was a period in time when everybody was kind of bailing on Pittsburgh. And it wasn't exactly the, uh, you know, the Renaissance city that it was promising. So Seattle bands were able to tap into indie label and major label record deals. And a few of them got famous. You, you probably know Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Mudhoney. Thinking back to Pittsburgh, the punk scene started in 1976 when punks were in college or in their early 20s, and now in 1982, 83, or even 84, people's lives were just in a different place. 78 to 81, 82, it was four years. Then it was over. And like, I don't know, it just like went like, bam, and it was over. One day you went to the banana and you went, that wasn't any fun. And then you go back and you go, that wasn't any fun again. And you realized, oh, you know what it was like? It's like when you break up with a lover and it's not until afterwards you go back and you go, oh, that was the last kiss. The way we lived was that every time could be the last time. We knew what we had. We knew what we had. And then when it's over, it's over. It's our lives. And people, people don't get it. They go, why are you always talking about the old days? It's just like you're in a cult. I said, no. Punk is the anti-cult. Yun's guys are in the cult. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. And thanks for joining us for this season. Yeah, it's been a fun season. I have a much better appreciation for the history of the neighborhood of Oakland. And it's been really interesting to learn how all these film and music and art scenes formed and how their influence lingers today. I can think of things like the Roboto punk scene. I can think of many film series that have occurred since Sally Dixon opened the film section. Yeah, definitely. And I think maybe John Galone said it best. It takes people to make a scene. Because in the end, these are stories about people, right? And their organizations change, the funding comes and goes, but creative people can't stop creating. This episode was written by Catherine. And Dave. And most of this music comes from the bands Car Sickness, The Five, The Rum Hounds, and Dressed Up as Natives. Thank you to the interviewees who gave us permission to use the songs. 
Additional music was made by Dave, that's me, and the band Waterer. Some of the live recording excerpts came from Mike Sykes' Pittsburgh Music Archive on YouTube. The Oral History Program is funded by the Weibel Foundation and other generous donors. And if you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the Oral History Program at library.cmu.edu slash orohistory. Also, hit subscribe so you can revisit the stories of Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde and be alerted to our upcoming seasons. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next season.